0: Hi there, and welcome to my show, The Shift No One Tells You About Writing. I'm your host, Bianca Marais. Before we dive into today's episode, I'd like to share some exciting news, which is that I will begin offering virtual creative writing courses, beginning with two that will be run over May and June of 2021. I'll share all the details of those courses with you at the end of today's episode, or you can go to my website www.biancamaray.com. Look under the Courses tab for the Costs And how to sign up. Today's guest began her publishing career in London at the Darley Anderson Literary, TV, and Film Agency. She has a BA in English Literature from Queen's University and an MA in Publishing Studies from City University, London. Since joining PS Literary Agency in 2010, she has had great success launching new creators domestically and abroad. Never without a book on hand, she reads across categories, which is reflected in the genres she represents at PSLA. Representing debuts and bestsellers, Carly is drawn to emotional, well-paced fiction with a great voice and characters that readers can get invested in, and platform-driven nonfiction. It's my pleasure to welcome Carly Waters. Carly,
2: welcome to the show. It's so lovely to have you today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I always love talking about books and agenting and whatever capacity anyone will have me and listen to me. So thank you.
0: And yeah, the listeners are definitely going to gain a lot from this conversation. So what I would like us to do is I would like to focus half of the episode on the business side of publishing and how that's evolved over the last while, because there's been so many changes in terms of what happened with COVID and then recently, you know, Penguin Random House buying out Simon & Schuster. So there's a lot on that side to talk about. But what I'd also like to do is to spend some time focusing on craft. If there's someone who really knows a heck of a lot about craft, it'll be you having read countless manuscripts over the course of
2: however long you've been doing this, which is how long? So I started working in publishing in 2009 and I started uh, agenting my own list in 2010. So I'm at my uh, 10-year agent anniversary this fall. Congratulations. (laughs) (laughs) So let's take a
0: moment and let's concentrate a bit on craft. I would like to focus on point of view. Now, remember for the listeners, a novel can be told from all these different kinds of point of view. So you have first person in which the character is an I, this I person is telling their story. You have third person, which can be broken down into various categories. You have third person omniscient, where the narrator is almost like God and can get into every character's head within the same scene. Not something easy easy to do. I remember seeing J.K. Rowling do it in The Casual Vacancy, and she did it quite masterfully, but not many authors are are able to pull that off. You have third person limited, so like with Harry Potter, for example, that was told from Harry's perspective, and so she had to create things like the pensive and the invisibility cloak and all sorts of things to allow the reader to have access to information that Harry wouldn't have access to because he wasn't there. You have the second person in which the authors pretty much speaking to the reader and putting them in the position of doing the action. So it would be something like you walk up the stairs, each one creaks and you stop for a moment and pause to look around. So it's these kinds of point of view. And they're extremely, extremely important. And when I teach creative writing, my students always expect me to do it in one of the first modules, but I never do. I leave it for right at the end because they think it's such an easy thing to do. And so they always just choose a point of view and dive into it and commit to it. And when you stop at the end to say, why did you do this in this third person or why did you do it in first person, they generally can't answer because they haven't given it a lot of thought. And it's probably one of the most critical things in terms of writing a novel, deciding the point of view that you're going to tell it from. So, Carly, in terms of the submissions that you get, what are the biggest mistakes that you see emerging writers making when they are pitching to you in terms of the point of
2: view that they've chosen? Yeah, it's an excellent question. And I agree, it is an advanced question. A lot of times, even with my authors who I've worked with for years, sometimes they'll write their first draft in one point of view and then have to switch it to another. And so in terms of mistakes, you know, I always say that the book should start at the most interesting point in a character's life. And so oftentimes when they're exploring what the POV needs to be, they are not thinking about the storytelling element. They're more thinking about how do I say everything that I have to say? You know, what is the best best method for me to get my thoughts on the page? Whereas you are crafting a character and a plot and something that is bigger than you as the writer. And so separating those two things is, is really important and something that grows with time. And yeah, you, you, can, you can write a novel in one point of view and then... And figure out, okay, I actually had to do this another point of view and then, oh wait, that, uh, that other point of view was actually the right one. And so it is very exploratory and I wouldn't suggest anybody get married to the way that they start out doing it. And to me, yeah, it shows a sign of a more advanced writer when they can you know, make that decision based on what is best for the characters in the plot, as opposed to what they think their style is suited best to.
0: And when it comes to third person, so this is something that I see with my students is they'll write something in third person and they won't give much thought as to what lens they're telling that story through. And I say to them, try and see it in the same way that you would see a film or a TV show playing out. You know, the camera could be focused on anything in a given scene. It could be focused on a daisy. It could be focused Mm -hmm. on a cloud. It could zoom out and be focused on everything that's happening, or it could zoom in and focus on one character's face. And so if you're writing in third person, you need to, in each scene, decide who's head you are putting us in and keep in mind that your point of view character everything that they relay to the reader has to be authentically something that they themselves would notice and it needs to be relayed in a way that is authentic to them. So if you're writing in the third person and you're writing from a five-year-old's perspective, they wouldn't be noticing that the woman on the street has a Gucci purse, for example. But if you're writing from the perspective of a fashionista who's 35 years old, then that is something she would notice. So the elements that you want to draw attention to in your story, that's what makes you decide who your who your point of view character is. Mm-hmm. Do you find, Carly, that writers, emerging writers, especially tend to jump between characters' heads and do the omniscient? Or do you think they, they generally don't choose the most interesting character to tell the story from? Or are they focusing on things that they, as the author, would notice, but not necessarily things that the character would be paying attention to?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I think about that in a number of ways. Firstly, I think that a lot of authors love the idea of head hopping until they start doing it. And what they end up doing, which is one of you know, my pet peeves and probably you know a, a newbie writer, thing is that they head hop, but then they tell the same scene through plot from both point of views. And so if you're going to be using head hopping, you have to use it as a tool to move the plot along and never repeat the same scene through the eyes of multiple characters. The point should be that you are head hopping to get a different perspective, but we never want to revisit the scene because if you think about it, you're actually just telling the same scene twice, which actually serves no purpose and and really slows things down. And so the other part that I think about Is one of the number one reason that editors actually pass on multi-POV novels, because I I love them, I love representing them, and you know, they are very cinematic. But the number one reason that editors end up passing on multi-POV novels is that they're the editors aren't feeling equally invested in each of the characters that you chose to, you know, shine the light on and, and have that POV. And that's a big problem because you want to, you know, equally be invested in them and they need equal secrets, right? And we can't really have a favorite. If you're going to be doing multiple POV, there can be a protagonist, but ultimately... By choosing multi-POV head-hopping, you're inherently having multiple protagonists, which, yes, makes your job a lot harder. The other thing is the more POVs you have, the less time you actually spend with that character. So you're actually, by having a multi-POV novel, say with two characters, so a dual POV, um, 80,000 word novel, we're actually only spending 40,000 words with each character. Whereas if you were gonna write a novel in one character's point of view, you have 80,000, that's double, you know, the amount of words to actually spend to get to know that character. So you actually have to be a more talented writer to write multi-POV because you have to make the absolute most of every moment with that character and every word that you're spending on that POV. So it's actually really risky, you know, to write uh, to write multi-POV too early in your career.
0: Just on that, I mean, my last novel had three narrators, two of them first person, one of them third person. And I was like, this is great. Three characters is going to be so interesting. And it was the hardest thing I've done and I will never, ever do that again. It was It was really, really tough. But keep in mind, that if you're doing two point of view characters told in the first person in alternating chapters, their voices have to sound very, very different. Besides the fact that each character has to be so engaging, each voice has to sound so different that the reader doesn't get confused and go, oh, you know, which character are we dealing with now? I would say that the one benefit of having alternating points of views is that the whole story is not being carried on the back of one character who has to constantly be interesting and engaging and who has to constantly have exciting Things happening in their life. So if you have two different characters, it can at least one character has a bit of downtime and then you switch to the other character where something interesting is, is happening in their lives.
2: I love multi-Pov. Um I think it's super cinematic. I think it's really modern. I think that's what readers want. Especially, you know, when you're thinking about how I won't speak for you, Bianca, but uh, the rest of us who are addicted to our phones and we're like flipping between apps or you know, we're we're just we're living in this world where our attention span is really short. And when you have multi-POV, I I think of readers like that because you know there's always something where you're flipping back and forth between which kind of mirrors our life
0: absolutely agree with you there so for those of you who are writing your first novels don't just go with the the point of view that you like oh this just feels natural etc this is something you really need to analyze up front you need to say who is the best person to tell the story and be prepared to get to a certain point in the novel and decide oh damn it actually would have worked so much better in the first person uh, with each of my novels I write the big Beginnings from every different point of view as I find my way into the character's voice, and I find that to be a, a great exercise to ground myself in the best possible foundation and then move forward from there. So that's an exercise I might suggest to you guys as well. All right, so so let's start by talking about COVID and how that's affected the publishing industry.
2: Yeah, it's been an interesting year to say the least. I don't know what kind of euphemisms are left to to speak about it in general terms, but uh, I feel that every Month has brought its own challenges. Every season, every lockdown, all over the world. So, in broad strokes, everybody working from home very quickly changed just the speed in which people kind of respond on a daily basis and how in-house publishers are conducting their meetings, which just delays everything because they used to be able to kind of pop into each other's offices and get us an answer as quick as possible. You know, as as the agent-author duo, you know, that's kind of what we need is just some quick answers or acquisition meetings and you know, just knowing what's going on. And this the, the kind of slowdown of the circle of communication at publishing houses is, you know, just inevitable um, with everybody working from home on their own schedule. So that just a general slowness. And I think everybody's dealing with the, not everybody, I shouldn't say, but many people are dealing with the same kind of every member of their family is back in their house. So they're trying to work and read and editors need time to be able to edit. And if they have children at home or elder care or, you know, whatever is going on in their life, you know, there's just so much life that is getting in the way of work, but it has to happen. And publishing is an extremely compassionate industry. We are always trying to look out for each other because it's such a relationship built business that there's been at no point this year, any editor or publicist or marketer or client or anybody in my Circle um, or the literary community that I'm in, you know, talk poorly about anybody, you know, not getting work done on time, or you know, everybody's just doing their best, and everybody collectively understands that, and you know, nobody's dropped the ball in a big way, and and the literary community, I think, was really showing up for each other to make the best out of this year as, as best as possible. So you know, there's there's just so many things other than just workflow with the book fairs being canceled that you know really put um, a lot of stress and strain on the foreign market, but with kind of COVID starting. More in you know in Europe and kind of moving its way across the world. They had the first shutdowns and the first closures. So North America was actually able to learn a lot from the bookstore closures, you know, that were happening abroad in Italy and in those kind of markets first. And so I think once publishing kind of understood what what a lockdown means is that books, uh, as much as we want them to be essential services, they are not essential services. And so just that revenue stream from an operational point of view really just slows the flow of money and you know the cash flow and it just you know slows and slows and slows. And as an agent, my job is to make sure the cash flow is back to the authors. And, um, you know, we have a lot of sympathy and understanding for publishers that are going through really hard times, smaller publishers, indie presses, but contracts are contracts, you know, authors have bills to pay. Authors are also going through a tough time, right? And and as individuals and as as an agent, you know, my job is to make sure that they're getting paid during these um, troubling times as well. So, It's just been a lot of balancing that kind of reflectiveness with trying to keep business going on. I did have a number of books come out this year. I only had one debut author launch this year. I think, you know, being a debut this year is incredibly, incredibly difficult. I mean, every marketing call that I've had this year has been a lot of people just admitting, like, we're starting from scratch. We don't know what we're doing. You know, we're trying a lot of things. We're doing virtual events, this and that. But the return on investment with virtual events is not actually something that you can quantify as easily as, you know, when you, a lot of bookstore events require people coming to the event to buy books from that store in in order to get them signed, right? And all of those kind of um, internal protocols. And when you do a bunch of virtual events, you have to think about how do I individualize them all and make sure we feel like each market segment that we're going to, or each, you know, we're trying to reach in terms of the consumer, like how are they feeling like their needs are met in a way when you can't just pop into their local bookstore and, and do an event you know in you know Northern Michigan or what you know whatever it is like to feel like you're really meeting the people where they are. So I think that's just been really interesting to figure out for newer authors or um, more authors who are in the kind of establishing part of their career um, just figuring exactly how to reach their customers and their and their fans So yeah it's been um, it's been a very, Tough year. Some pub dates were being moved as well, so that required a lot of flexibility from people. Um, I luckily, I only had one client book that got a pub date moved, but it was kind of informally moved because it was supposed to launch the week of the week after the murder of George Floyd, and publishing, you know took an absolute halt, you know, the brakes were just kind of put on everything and really took a, a big moment to mourn and gather as a community and, you know, really reflect. And that was the beginning of kind of the the deep reflection period that a lot of publishing has been in, in 2020, thinking about the white supremacy that publishing is built upon, the racism that is felt sometimes by authors or in-house staff, and just kind of really taking a deep look into, are they publishing authors of color at the rate they should be? And, and you know, and that work continues to be done. And, and some imprints, and editors have been doing that for a long time. The gatekeepers have to think about where their gates are, why they're there. Do they see themselves as gatekeepers? Yes or no. And, and agents are responsible for that as well. Um, you know, we are all part of the gatekeeping that is publishing, and there's a lot of steps to be included in this industry that can be, you know, very challenging for authors of color and people that want to work in publishing or people of color too. So lots of hurdles, lots of challenges and all in the face of this, you know, just trying to keep on with everybody's day jobs uh, amidst a global pandemic and and general kind of cultural reflection on racism and systemic racism in publishing. (laughs) Easy, easy breezy kind of publishing here. So just to break
0: down a few things Mm -hmm. that you said there, Carly, one for the listeners who aren't sure about how books sell in foreign markets and you were talking about the conferences and the expos there that were canceled. So you're talking predominantly about Frankfurt and London? Were those the, the two big ones where foreign rights are sold? And can you just break down for us what happens during those expos?
2: Yeah, so the first one to be cancelled was Bologna, which uh, is in March. And so that was kind of the first inkling where the pandemic it was declared a pandemic in early March, Bologna was cancelled, and then it was kind of the snowballing of a lot of the fairs holding on, thinking they can still do this. But logistically, there was no way, because book fairs essentially are a gathering of the entire international publishing community. Selling foreign rights for domestic titles in their market to be translated into um, countries abroad, so it's gener- it's just entirely um, foreign publishing coming together. And so, as a global pandemic began, it was very quickly seen that there's just no way to actually accomplish that. And so, a lot of people in foreign rights were doing kind of Zoom meetings to replicate, you know, what could have been from the market from the book fairs. But there is no real way to replicate what a book fair is—the buzz and the pitching and what what you know people or you know I'll try to figure out what the big buzz book is and you know what's going to sell fast and you know what the trends of the year are and so it's a real kind of taste making conference and to just rip that out from this year not only for London which is the big adult trade show in the spring and then Frankfurt the big trade show in the fall uh, Bologna is the children's fair if I if I didn't specify that so yeah just kind of ripping all of that out. and then there's Book Expo which happens they moved around the dates a number of times but it's generally in late spring early summer and we just found out this week that they are canceling Book Expo for good. So not only did we lose all of our conferences this year, just the, the lack of funding and, and vision and they used this year as an excuse to kind of say, we were reevaluating, you know, the, what Book Expo's purpose was, you know, anyway, and this year has shown us X, Y, and Z. But yeah, so we, we don't have Book Expo going forth and Book Expo was the um, New York based conference and they were turning it more into a trade show anyway. And just for
0: listeners, so in terms of foreign rights, the sale of them is so important because mm-hmm. when you sell a book. To your publisher, they will give you an advance on that novel. And the more foreign rights that they can sell means the closer you get to earning out that advance and then getting your royalties. So it's super important for you as an author that your publisher sells as many foreign rights copies of your novel as possible. That's why that's important. And in terms of Book Expo America, I mean, that's hugely important because for somebody like me, when I brought out my debut novel, Hum, if you don't know the words, in 2017, the American book Booksellers Association chose it as a top debut of the year. And so I was flown to New York for Book Expo so that I could meet tons of booksellers, make relationships with them so that they could learn about my book, which would allow them to sell the book. So these relationships are incredibly, incredibly important for, you know, not just literary agents, for authors as well. So when this kind of thing happens, it has a a huge knock on effect. And what Carly was saying earlier about being a debut author this year, how difficult that is because you don't have the opportunity to create those relationships. Of course, there have been exceptions. One in Canada that I absolutely loved seeing was Natalie Jenner, who wrote the Jane Austen Society, Mm. which did phenomenally well. It's been considered as one of the Goodreads top reads of the year and she's a debut author and how wonderful to see that one book kind of stand out and shine even in such a difficult climate but of course so much harder for all the other debut authors who are trying to get their work noticed along the way.
2: My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. Other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of a one hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal.
0: another thing that you said earlier carly is how many books launches were moved out so from the end of this year to early next year how much of a backlog does that create in terms of how editors are prepared to buy new books because they have this whole roster and a book they buy now will come out 18 to 24 months later so if all these books get shifted out does this mean they're more loath to buy new books to feed into that roster or not necessarily
2: not necessarily i i was paying attention to it more on the bookseller end because there's only so many spaces on a bookshelf right and so I don't know if you saw in the news so the biggest market that did the kind of pub date moving was the UK and the first week of September because a lot of the spring books and early summer books they had decided to move to September so the first week of September I forget how many like tens of thousands of books launched it was just absolutely mind-boggling that they chose to launch and obviously there's only so much space in a bookstore um, so physically there is no Room to put all of those books. And I'm not sure if some of your listeners know this or not, but the amount of time that a bookseller has to keep your book on their shelf once they've ordered it, depending on the retailer, is usually about four to six weeks. And then they're allowed to ship it back to the publisher for returns. So if you're an author, you would see on your statement, you know, uh, a reserve against returns that that not every book will be sold. So when you have something like that, there's just they're going to be very hesitant to actually stock your book and in a year like COVID, how many people are actually going to the bookstores? I haven't been going phys- uh, like physically into bookstores very often. I've been doing a lot of online ordering like a lot of people have. You know, my city um, you know was a hot spot for a, a number of key points this year. So we have just like most people just been staying home. And so the discoverability is gone. If you can't go to a bookstore, if you are trying to launch too many books in a month, the discoverability Is gone. If you have publicists and marketers who have all their titles that they were gonna publish balanced out throughout the year, all of a sudden dumped into certain months where there's the bulk of their work has to be done, they're overloading their contacts for publicity. We just can't cover all of these books. And so I empathize with the publishers because they are running a business and I'm a businesswoman and I get it. You know, they have to do what they have to do. But my job is to be an advocate for the author, right? And so they have other quarters they can use to make up for a quarter where they have losses, or, you know, they can make up for their year in other ways. But uh, an author can't make up, you know, at their year, if the publisher just kind of isn't able to put the resources into their title at that given moment. And so, you know, I care about my authors, but I also care about the general health of the industry. And, you know, the general well being, you know, we work within an ecosystem that is pretty defined, right. And so, you know, there's only so much wiggle room, and we just we have to allow for that. So yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting year.
0: (laughs) Have you noticed a change in the kind of books that editors are now acquiring? Because I've noticed a huge change in the kind of books people have been consuming during Covid, and I feel like books that maybe dealt with more serious themes perhaps wouldn't be snapped up post-Covid as they would have beforehand. Because I know so many readers who say they just want pure escapism, they just want entertainment. That this year has been tough, and they don't want to have to be reading about more tough things. So, have you noticed that at all, or not necessarily?
2: Yeah, yeah. I have this conversation with editors, and I also um, have close relationships in LA with um, the film and TV agents that I work with, and and that's also just you know a general taste. For, for the industry, and so. It's either a huge hunger for escapism the fiction, and then on the flip side, also serious nonfiction. And I think that's also what we're seeing from the post George Floyd murder and kind of the reflection of where we are, you know, culturally as a society and, and that cultural criticism that's kind of spilling out of that. There was the book, the cased book, was it Isabel uh, Wilkerson's book? Um, and that's considered, you know, one of the best books of the year. So I think that's the type of thing. And then on the fiction side, we're going to see lots of really uh, lighter things that are uplifting people and, and helping to take them away. And so in LA, yeah the hunger also for film TV has been for sweeping love stories is <laughs> always the big one. and they have a lot of dark stuff already that have been on the back burner because with TV and film they haven't been able to make things because everybody's you know been locked down and quarantined and so they are slowly able to film stuff but they're trying to work on a lot of development right now so that when COVID is over they'll just be like ready to go out of the gate with actually like filming pilots in development. So yeah, so it's, um, it it is a balance. Another conversation I've been having with editors is how on the nose do we want to be about the pandemic? (laughs) You know, like, are we going to be naming it? Are we going to be incorporated into fiction and nonfiction? If you are acquiring nonfiction, do you want books about the pandemic or not? Or pandemic adjacent? Or, you know, what is relevant about the pandemic? And there have been pandemic books, you know, I'm using air quotes, pandemic books sold, and everybody can see that kind of thing in, in Publishers Marketplace and Publishers Weekly, but very selective. A lot of the books that have been sold, sold, you know, in the deal notes, say, you know, with research to come or developing over the course of the next year. And so there are going to be some books that are crashed no doubt. I mean, there are some publishers that are going to be able to, um, you know, be crashing things about the vaccine. Um, you know, it's, it's just the way publishing works. They're always able to ju- certain books will always be, be fast tracked. However, there's a lot of creative ways to do it these days. You could do you know, you could crash a, a short audiobook. you know what I mean? So publishing is getting creative about the way that they're reaching their audience. But the traditional, you know, 18 months to have a book published is still the reality. So a lot of editors right now are saying don't talk about the pandemic in your fiction. If they're buying nonfiction, they are really selectively looking at pandemic books. So if I'm an author pitching a pandemic book, I would evaluate whether it has to be a pandemic book or whether it's pandemic adjacent. But at the
0: same time, there's a whole bunch of books that came out this year that they had to adjust the dates because anybody reading a novel that Mm -hmm. takes place in 2020 without reference to the pandemic, unless it's like a fantasy novel in an alternate universe, people are like, what the hell, man, these people are in restaurants. How the hell are they in restaurants? (laughs) Why are these people kissing on the first date? You know, so so these these are things that like we are thinking about as readers and so mm-hmm. Annabelle Lyon brought out Consent which was it was one of the Giller books and uh, they had to change the dates in that because it was supposed to extend to 2021 and suddenly the book ended in 2019 because she didn't want to have to mention COVID. Mm-hmm. There was Alan Doyle's All Together Now which he only wrote in July and has just launched so talk about rushing a book to market, and it's these fun tales for people who just need a bit of distraction. And then um, Emma Donahue's Pull of the Stars. Yes. That yeah. book was supposed to only come out next year, and that got fast-tracked because that was a book about 1918, Spanish flu. It was supposed mm-hmm. to come out next year, and they moved it to this year because it was so timely for people. Mm-hmm. And you would have thought people didn't want to read this book, but they did, even though it was about a different kind of pandemic. So for me, it's going to be interesting to see if these editors predict are right in terms of if people will want to read about COVID or not. So, you know, these are all things that people need to consider in terms of the works in progress that, they, that they're busy writing now. Okay, so moving on from there, let's talk about Penguin Random House and the Simon & Schuster acquisition. What impact is this going to have for writers moving forward? And why is it such a big deal in in the industry. If you could just take us through the history of the big publishing houses and how Penguin was just Penguin, Random House was Random House and what these acquisitions mean.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. So over the past 10 years I've been witness to a number of mergers and acquisitions. I've had clients get stuck in the middle of some of them and you know, had to navigate that. So it is it's disruptive. It's hugely disruptive. And so I'm, you know, just to let everybody know about Penguin Random House merger so at the time, that felt like it came out of nowhere in a way that I think everybody saw this one coming because they were, because um, Simon & Schuster announced that they were up for sale and things like that. But with Penguin Random House, it really felt like that merger came out of nowhere. And that was more shocking, I think, at the time to everyone. So with this one, yeah, we, I think everybody saw it coming. It was just a matter of, I think a lot of people probably saw that, um, that News Corp had bid on it. Um, so it was just a matter of where things were going to land. And I think another important thing for everybody to know is just because there's been an announcement about the purchase, it still has a number of regulatory bodies that it needs to make it through. And as a multinational, it has to go through the approvals of every country that it's represented in. So in a country like America, where you know it's a pretty healthy, you know, capitalist society where there's lots of you know different publishers, and so even in in America, it's it's considered to be possibly you know not going to make it through the the antitrust law laws uh, and might not be approved the regulatory bodies. And then you look at other countries, for example, in Canada, where there aren't a lot of big, big publishers. Like We don't even have a Macmillan on the ground uh, physically in Canada, and we don't have an Hachette on the ground in Canada. We just got a Simon & Schuster on the ground in Canada probably eight years ago, and they just started ramping up their list. And so especially in a country like Canada, the Canadian regulatory bodies should block this sale because it is anti-competitive to authors because it's less places to sell your book and I can go on and on with you know all of the, the pros and cons if you want me to but you know the main thing that people need to know is that it is anti-competitive and the bigger Publishing gets the less friendly it is to authors because when they are negotiating, either on the bookseller side of things, they're going to be super bullish to them, um, which might push them out of business, and they're going to be super bullish with agents and authors, thinking that um, you know there's nobody left to negotiate, and, and you have to go with us, and you know the deal terms are going to get more challenging and more challenging. And one of the frustrating things for agents this year was Penguin Random House, when they were buying books this year, they said that they need to. Provide all of their payments. So. A lot of publishers do payments in thirds. So the on-signing, the delivery and acceptance and the publication. Now people are moving to fourths. um, So that fourth payment would be divided up, you know, six to 12 to 18 months after pub. And Penguin Random House this year said, oh, we need to do five payments this year because of COVID. Then they went around and bought Simon & Schuster. And do you know, I don't know if I can swear on this podcast, so I won't, but do you know how how pissed off authors and agents were? We were livid. I mean, if you are going to have a top-down message. message saying that, yeah, you know, Covid has been so tough on our business, and they're pu- they're passing the buck down to authors, and then they go and spend two billion dollars on an acquisition. Does that show respect to authors? To you, it, it doesn't to me. And so that kind of attitude is visible from day one. So yeah, so then there's going to be the whole fact that they are less, uh, they're taking less risks, right? So one of the things about as publishers get bigger is that coincidentally they have more lawyers, and more lawyers are going to say, you know, there's libel here, you know, let's get a. Legal Legal read on this and they're just, they're not going to be as risky with what they take on because they're so much more beholden to the shareholders in a way that smaller publishers and independents can be a bit more agile. So that's obviously very upsetting to authors who are, you know, especially the literary authors who are, you know, really trying to make a mark, you know, in terms of, you know, the literary quality and the literary canon, just not being able to fit into um, the commercial publishing, the trade business as it's evolved. Less opportunities, as I said. So if there are less places to sell your book, then there's just less people to make it offer. And if there's less less people that can make an offer, it's anti-competitive because a lot of times what happens with these imprints is that they're not allowed to bid e- against each other. And, you know, there's all of these rules about who can or can't bid against each other.
0: Just to jump in there. So in terms of the imprints, so, you know, you will go to your, your bookshelf and you will go, oh, well, very few of these books say Simon and Schuster or say Penguin Random House or say Macmillan, but you need to look at each imprint. So remember that under Penguin Random House, there are a whole lot of smaller imprints. So they publish, it looks like a separate publisher, but it's a part of Penguin Random House. And what Carly's saying is, if there are like 20 imprints under Penguin Random House, and there's perhaps five editors of these imprints who all want the same book, they're not allowed to compete against each other in terms of making offers on the book. And we all hear about these wonderful bidding wars that shoot up the price of the book and the advance of the book. And uh, that wouldn't happen if they're all under the same publishing house. So these editors will be told, well, one or two of you get to you know choose you
2: can't all bid against each other and drive up the price of the book very good point and that's just part of our job and a lot of the reasons that the forward market you know wants to take a chance on a book or hollywood wants to take a chance on a book is sometimes when it says you know book sold at auction or this or that you know part of that deal story and that buzz is something that helps us as a sales tool to sell it in other markets or sell audio rights and etc so yeah so if we lose that kind of ability to kind of create that kind of buzzy story around the deal because we well, Send it to I don't know what they're going to call themselves SSPRH, um, and you know only one person is allowed to buy it. We we just we lose that um, you know that just little bit of salesiness in terms of um, how we can pitch. And I have heard you know one single argument for why monolith publishing can be good, and I will share it with you. And you know your re- your listeners can decide whether they think it's valid. The one positive thing that some people are citing is that they feel that SSPRH could take on Amazon and thinking that you know if we have the the kind of mega publisher some people are calling it that has the ability and reach and size to be able to negotiate with amazon um, in a way that other people haven't been able to that could be a good thing i will say that i um i don't believe that <laughs> to be a good argument because one of the things that publishing has always lacked is a direct relationship with their consumers on a you know b2b way right like their publishers don't have direct access to their buyers it, because they're like the reader because their buyers are bookstores. And what Amazon did was they became the publisher, you know, the distributor and the bookstore, right? They are the whole chain. And so publishing, and unless publishing also opened bookstores, like there is no way for them to actually compete with Amazon. So um, so I find that, that argument to, to be invalid. So I, as an agent, can't think of a single good reason for this merger to go through. I hope that the regulatory bodies block this because they should have blocked the Penguin Random House merger. And... There has been a number of organizations putting letters out about them trying to say their piece about why they don't think that the acquisition should go through. One of them is the Association of Canadian Publishers. You know, it really, really would devastate the Canadian publishing scene in ways that the ones that I've listed, but also so many to come, you know, it disrupts the whole ecosystem and um, makes it less friendly to authors. And my job is to to advocate and fight for them. And do you think that this
0: kind of change would lead to more author's self-publishing? Do you think that self-publishing will become more rigorous. And and then again, because then if you're self-publishing, most authors will self-publish with Amazon.
2: Yeah. So I'll tell you my prediction and we can meet back in five years. So and we can figure out if I'm right. So my prediction is this, as the mega publishers eventually come together, what's going to happen is people are going to break off, you know, and they're going to start their own independent publishers. And so I do think some authors will maybe self-publish, but I do think that publishing itself, you know, not everybody wanted to go into corporate publishing to, to do corporate corporate publishing, right? Like they they wanted to discover authors, be part of the literary scene for so many other reasons. So I think that some people who are mid-level career or even further on in their career are going to start indie houses. And I think they're going to be very creative about how they are starting them. And I think we're going to see a new wave of indie publishing in a way that will then thrive, but then the mega publishers are going to buy them again. And I think we're going to see this like five to 10 year cycle of publishing just kind of e- eating its, its offspring and, and Publishers and I don't know how to describe it, but I think you know it's just there is going to be a alternative wave, and I'm very curious to see what that alternative wave looks like in funding. Whether you know it's going the VC route, you know getting more into tech. Whether it's going super indie and underground, super experimental. uh, Also, whether they you know merge with more you know the TV film side. You know, there's just a lot of ways that publishing can partner and grow moving forward and so yeah so I think that mega publishing is going to continue to be mega publishing and continue to acquire more we'll see some indies you know they'll thrive they'll get bought up and and we'll just see the cycle all over again
0: Carly thank you so much for taking the time out to chat with me this has been so enlightening and I know it'll be super super enlightening to to my listeners as well
2: well thank you for um suffering through all of my business talk I have a lot to say on that side so I feel like maybe I left everybody uh feeling like publishing is in a dark place, But the reality is that the business is actually doing well this year. There actually has been growth because during dark times, people are turning to literature. They are turning to their comforts. Audiobooks are doing great. So keep up the good work, everybody. Um, Our our business will live on. We have survived centuries because of it. And and the written word will will carry us through as it always does.
0: Great point. And today I was talking to a bookseller in uh, Ontario who was telling me that she's busier now than she's ever been in the last 20 years in terms of orders and things like that. So yes, people absolutely are reading. There is a market. It's just a case of finding your voice and finding your reader. And now for those details on the two creative writing courses that I will be offering in May and June. The first course is called So You Want to Write a Novel. Maybe you've always wanted to write a novel but just don't know where to begin. Or you had a really great idea but it fizzled out or you finished your novel but weren't able to sell it for whatever reason. Maybe you're not sure if you headed in the right direction and would like some feedback on your work in progress. If so, this eight-week course consisting of 16 hours of lecture time is for you. Join me virtually once a week for two hours at a time to learn everything you need to know in order to start working on your novel. Learn about structure, pacing, stakes, characterization, conflict, backstory, plotting, dialogue, and writing scenes in a practical way that will allow you to apply your learning to your work in progress. Test your idea to ensure that it has legs so you don't write yourself into a dead end after just a few weeks. Work in groups to critique each other's work and to get feedback on your own work, and get feedback from me with regards to your strengths as a writer and areas in which you can improve. This virtual course via Zoom begins on the 6th of May 2021 and will run until the 24th of June 2021. Webinars are every Thursday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Classes will be recorded in case you have to miss any of them. Then the second course that I'm offering is Writing a Kick-Ass First Chapter. Now, most agents and editors who consider your work won't read past the first chapter. If you don't grab their attention in those first few pages, you've lost out on an opportunity to have your work stand out. Spend four weeks consisting of eight hours of webinar time with me learning how to finesse and polish your first chapter into something that shines. Learn all the theory involved in great openings and how to apply them to your own work in progress. Spend two hours every Saturday morning from the 8th of May to the 29th of May, a virtual webinar, work in groups critiquing one another's work and get personalized feedback from me as well. The online Zoom classes are from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Classes will be recorded in case you have to miss any of them. If you're interested, please go to my website, www.biancamaray.com. Look under the Courses tab for the costs and how to sign up. If you're an own voices author from a marginalized or underrepresented group writing about your own experiences from your own perspective and if you'd like to attend but can't afford the course, please reach out to me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com to apply. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com And I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news. The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers? Some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line. Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be.
1: Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom. To learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, We're having a live, cozy, 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Cece agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there.
0: Great news. The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers? Some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line. Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular match-up will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the match-up emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader match-up tab, And please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be.
1: Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live cozy 90 minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Cece agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there.